Hello and welcome to Book Reviews Kill, a podcast about fantasy, sci-fi, and horror novels. I'm Chad. And I'm Evan. And you are listening to our recap of The Hod King, book three in the Books of Babel Quartet by Josiah Bancroft. Wow, what an incredible series this is turning out to be. I'm so happy we're reading this. Me too. I kind of gave you all of the kudos uh, last time for being the best book picker ever. And you know what? I'm just going <laughs> to lap that mulberry bush again because, dear God, these books are incredible. So they're the most unique books I think I've ever read. I know. I was kind of patting myself on the back the other day. I was just like, oh, man, I think I, I just picked out of the blue Chad's new favorite fantasy series. You did. I'm so proud of myself. You should be, dude. And that's like, and uh, not to be like, my books hoity-toity, but like, you know, I run a book podcast and I read a <laughs> lot of books. And these books are, if not at the very tippy top, number one on my list, they're in the top three they're for sure. nudging in there. Absolutely. Oh, hard and heavy. And they just keep getting better. They do. I mean, I I'm gonna I want to admit something real quick though. It, I was a bit worried headed into this particular book that it mm-hmm. wouldn't hold up to Arm of the Sphinx. I loved Same. Arm of the Sphinx right before I cracked it open. I was like, okay, let's see. I mean, this is well, this, this book go, two in the trilogy, right? Right. But <laughs> Bancroft has proved to me he not only has an outstanding imagination, but an obvious ability to put out consistently good work. And not only that, but he thought about this series the perfect amount before starting to write it. I feel like I've read some books that you can tell the author thought about it too much, or it was like stewing in their brain for 25 years before they actually put it down on paper, or some authors that didn't think about it enough. And you're like, this story is kind of confusing and not well fleshed out. This, it's just perfect. It's not so much that I'm drowning in new words and story building and depth of history that doesn't add to the story in any way, but it doesn't have None of that either. Just enough to hook me and keep me going the whole way through it. You know what? I, I feel like, and we're, you know, we can talk to Bancroft a little bit more about this. And I don't really know how to phrase this question to him, but it feels to me like he just doesn't have a filter and he just lets <laughs> all of his imagination, like everything he thinks of, he's just like, all right, we're just going to fit it in. We're just going to make it work because there's so much stuff in here that's just totally bonkers that I would never have thought of in a million years. And it just slides right into place. It just makes sense in this world. Like all of that being said, though, this wasn't exactly the book I was expecting it to be. It wasn't bad at all. It was really, really great. But while we had a bit of movement to different kingdoms in the previous volume, we're mostly in one spot here, which is Pelphia, level five of an alleged number of 64 levels in this tower. But of course, even though there's a sort of feeling of stasis here, like physically, there's a lot happening, a lot of growth for our main characters and something we haven't seen yet in this series, which would be sort of like time shifts between narratives. Yeah, he tries something new in this book, I feel like, with his um, the flow of his story and how he goes about, I think, trying to not make his storylines clash and be too confusing and the way he separates them. It's very unique. And Well, one of the really cool things about structuring the book in the way that he did was that it allowed him to have not only a number of different like, like cliffhangers, but it made us as the readers have to wait like hundreds of pages for multiple cliffhangers to really find out what was going on or like what became of Valida or the state of the art or right. Edith or Senlin. plummets from the poor right. dead dog. <laughs> with, with Aaron like sitting with a shot in the head, Valida in her oh arms. Yeah. And so like you could do that at the end and have everything pile towards the end, kind of like with um, like the end of Senlin Ascends. But he decided to do it a little differently. And I, I loved it. It was, and it kind of threw me off at first, obviously. Like 
I was a little worried that we were going to get kind of like a season four of Stranger Things kind of thing where you've got all these little... Well, yeah, well yeah, you're right. But people listening know that I've watched it. you got all these like little tributaries, right? And you're like, how is this all going to... So Am I even going to remember like what everyone was doing by the time that this is all sewn up? But I think Bancroft did a really excellent job at keeping everything in place, even though it was separated at times. Yeah, I agree in retrospect. I will say that while I was reading it, I was definitely like, okay, what? Like, did my book come with a couple chapters missing or something? <laughs> like, it confused me when we started jumping back and forth and the timeline started getting a little bit more uh, mixed around. And like I said, in retrospect, he pulled it off and it worked out very well. But I certainly, there was a certain point of the book that I was confused for a little bit, thinking that I either missed something or I, my book was missing some pages or something. I totally agree. And I, th I, th I think we're in really good hands here. Also, keeping everybody in Pelthia, kind of when I started to realize, oh, I think everybody's just hanging out here for the most part. I was a little bit initially like, ah, oh, man, there's so many other ringdoms that I wanted to explore. So I was kind of bummed out about that. But on the flip side of that, I think it was also a, a pretty good idea. It gave everybody a chance to breathe, kind of, and like we could really just sit and kind of develop everything. And it feels like chess pieces kind of being moved on a board. This is book three of four. I think a lot of the movement in this series is going to happen in this next book, which is, I mean, it's called The Fall of Babel, for one thing. So whatever that means, it's huge. It's a gigantic book. So It's a ginormous I, book. I've already started reading it, whatever. Oh, did you? Just, oh. Like, just like the first chapter. I've been refraining to because, oh, but it's been hard because I really, really wanted to. I agree with what you just said in that we sit in one location most of the time during this book, more than any of the other books. And I think that was a really intentional and, and smart move by Josiah when he was writing it, as the other books seemed certainly about the people, but it was very focused on the tower and its mysteries being revealed. Whereas this book, the focus changes a little bit. So it's not so much about the towers, the mysteries that we're unearthing as we go along, but it's more about the people. And in order to kind of have that focus and really get out the shovel and start digging into the characters, we need the environment to stay the same so we're not constantly drowning in a sea of new environment new things new places new things to wonder at it's just like okay nope we're in one spot we know what it looks like around us we can kind of move on more to focus and dig a little bit deeper into the the characters we're not dungeon crawling right we're not dungeon crawling even though, <laughs> even though we i definitely love dungeon do crawling. Some crawling later in this book well speaking of crawling let's get to our recap and uh, we'll, we'll timestamp the recap. If you want, you could skip the whole thing and you could just go straight to our discussion. Or you can sit back, relax, and listen to Chad's sweet, sultry voice. <laughs> oh, thank you, Evan. The book begins in Pelphia, fifth ringdom of the Tower of Babel. Following the Sphinx's orders, Senlin poses as a brooding, boorish boskin named Cyril Penfield in order to discover why her mechanical butterflies, which act as her eyes and ears throughout the tower, have gone missing specifically in the Colosseum, where Hods are forced to fight for the Pelthians' amusement. Senlin has been instructed to send any information he gleans to Byron in the form of mechanical moths and to neglect looking for his wife Maria, who has married a duke named Wilhelm Pell. Before arriving in Pelthia, Senlin asks Byron to relay personal recordings to Edith without the Sphinx knowledge. Byron agrees. Pelphia is a ringdom known for ever-changing fashion, frequent parties, and insatiable celebrity culture. Upon his arrival, Senlin attends the Colosseum, 
but immediately attempts to gain access into a gentleman's club called the Coterie, of which the Duke is a member. After being refused entry, he sends his card to the Duke, asking for an audience. At his hotel, Senlin requests the staff give him every newspaper over the past year and learns of his wife's Maria's new title, The Mermaid, and of her celebrity status among the Ringdom, the result of her uncouth piano playing and beautiful voice. She has been playing shows at a theater, but was absent for a number of months. The newspaper blames her absence on a sickness, claiming that Duke Pell has been attempting to find her a cure. Against his better judgment, Senland tends a play about Maria's life where he is depicted as an oafish boar who preys upon Maria, while the Duke is depicted as her savior. He leaves the play early, and on his way home witnesses a hod being assaulted by two men in an alley. Senlin rescues the hod, but upon being freed, the hod kills the two men with a brick before shouting, Come the hod king, and running off into the night. Senlin goes back to the hotel and reports the incident to the authorities. The next morning, he is interviewed by a general Andreas Eichengral, and a wakeman named Georgine Haste. Haste accuses Senlin of fabricating the story, claiming Senlin murdered the two men himself. He is nearly arrested when a note from Duke Wilhelm arrives, inviting Senlin to speak with him the following day at the Coterie Club. Senlin meets with the Duke the next day and presents him with a business proposition to sell stocks of Maria's talent. Pell isn't certain about the idea and says they must get Maria's permission, inviting Senlin to a party that evening where she will be in attendance. They watch two Hods fight in the Colosseum, and Senlin realizes one of the Hods is none other than his old friend Taru. Back at his hotel, he receives a slapping telegram from the Sphinx, reprimanding him for not lying low. He asks the concierge for a suit and an ugly mask that he can wear to the party that evening, and is on his way when he meets Eidengrau, who explains that from Senlin's description of the Hod, they were able to arrest the murderer, who is scheduled to be executed. Senlin goes to the Duke's party and is finally reunited with Maria. They go on a cart ride. Another of the Sphinx's clever machines presented as a fun ride, but is in actuality a mechanism to coerce the general population to assist in the tower's upkeep. While on the cart ride, Maria tells Senlin to take off the mask as she knew it was him all along. Senlin is caught off guard and says he has come to rescue her, but only if she wants to leave. He tells her of his numerous mistakes of the past year, including the kiss he shared with Edith. Maria explains that she has resigned to her new life in Pelfia and that he should go home. In complicated spirits, Senlin returns to his hotel and sends a message to Edith. At the wall of recompense, and with Senlin in attendance, Eigengrau presents a number of the Had accused, sentenced to death by firing squad. Senlin tries to explain that none of them are the actual Had he witnessed murdering the two men. He attempts to stop the execution, but fails, and is witness to a line of Hods, including a child, whose debt he tries to buy, being executed. Senlin returns to the Colosseum and attempts to send a note to his friend Taru, saying that he will try to rescue him. He wants Taru to throw the match so Senlin will win a bet, his winnings being the ownership of Taru. He ascends to the Coterie Club where he meets with Wilhelm, who tells Senlin that he has managed to convince Maria to sell herself as stock. When asked how he convinced her, Wilhelm threatens Senlin and tells him not to worry about it. A group of women dance for Senlin in the club to celebrate their business arrangement, but one of the dancing girls recognizes Senlin as Mud, the pirate captain, and after a short chase, Senlin is captured. Wilhelm forces a mask on Senlin and throws him and Taru both into the Hod Trail. 
He also reveals that Senlin has a daughter and tells Senlin that if he ever escapes the Black Trail and returns, he will slit his daughter's throat. Senlin is led through the Black Trail by Taru, who is shot in the leg during a skirmish near the gates. They come across a camp of Hod zealots and pledge their allegiance to the Hod King. Senlin is recognized by Sadiq, the Hod he rescued, and is momentarily lauded as a hero. But another Hod, none other than Senlin's old employer, Finn Gol, outs Senlin as Thomas Senlin and Mud, the pirate captain. The story shifts focus to the rest of Senlin's crew, manning the Sphinx flagship, the state of the art, and tasked with retrieving Pelphia's copy of the Bricklayer's paintings. We find Volita training for high society etiquette with a frustrated Byron as she prepares to pose as the Sphinx's niece upon their arrival to the Ringdom. The state of the art enters the Pelphian port with much fanfare, and Irene and Volita depart with their hosts, the Marquis de Clark and his daughter Xenia. Volita makes a name for herself and the papers by running across the city rooftops, where she meets Prince Francis. She is horrified later to learn that a young woman, none other than Commissioner Pound's daughter, has fallen to her death in an attempt to emulate her. Valida attends a party with the prince and is invited to attend a concert of Maria's at the Vivant. While watching the performance, the prince produces a backstage pass and encourages Valida to use it. Valida goes backstage, meets Maria, and explains that she is Senlin's friend and here to help her leave Pelphia. Maria again refuses the offer and Valida learns of Olivette, Maria and Senlin's baby. Maria returns to the stage, leaving Valita alone to conclude that Maria is staying in Pelphia only to protect her daughter. Meanwhile, Prince Francis instructs his friend to lock Irene in a closet so he can corner Valita backstage. He traps her in Maria's dressing room and in the ensuing scuffle, shoots her in the head. Irene breaks free from the closet and rushes backstage, coming upon the scene of the prince and Valita's seemingly lifeless body. Enraged at the sight of Valita, she stabs the prince to death with a coat rack. Realizing Valita is still alive, Irene covers her with a coat and rushes back to the state of the art, knowing only the Sphinx can save Valita. When she gets to the port, however, she sees the state of the art blasted from the sky by the Ararat. We then go back to Senlin and learn about the bounty Luke Marat has placed on his head for destroying the Golden Zoo. Gol and Taru elect to take Senlin to Marat, and they travel together to Mola Ambit, near the 15th Ringdom of Nineveh, via air vents to avoid other Hods. The three are attacked by a chimney cat, which together they are able to kill. Senlin begins to suspect that the Sphinx knew he would fail on his mission in Pelphia and get sent on the Black Trail to Marat. The story shifts to Edith before the state of the art is shot from the sky. She befriends Pelphia's Wakeman Georgine and saves a young Hod sent up in a balloon to repair the Ringdom's mechanical son. She requests Pelphia's painting from the king, suggesting the Sphinx will give Pelphia a new technology in return, but the king keeps stalling, saying he can't find the painting. She then learns of Senlin's fate being forced onto the Hod trail. Working with Eigengrau, Edith discovers a hidden chamber in the Colosseum where the Hods have been working in secret to build a mysterious machine capable of digging through the walls. Haste, the tower's wakeman, is eating dinner with Edith aboard the state-of-the-art when Edith learns that she is actually a zealot and is working with the Hods to take over the tower. A fight ensues between the two, and Edith barely emerges victorious. Rettelman, the former Red Hand, now working as Edith's pilot, sees Eigengrau leading a group of soldiers onto the ship. He proceeds to lobotomize them with a needle. Byron is also accosted by soldiers but releases the Sphinx protector machine, 
Ferdinand, who proceeds to playfully crush them to death, but dies in the process. Byron finds his courage and comes out to help, and seeing Ferdinand dying, drives Eigengrau from the ship after shooting him. Our separate storylines become one, as the Ararat blows the state of the art from the sky. Rettleman, however, has learned of the ship's levitators and uses them to come back into the fray. They rise, releasing the airship's full destructive power upon the port and the Ararat both, reducing it all to dust. Edith sees the escaping Eigengrau and crushes him to death. Back on the ship, at Irene's insistence, Rettleman revives Valida by injecting her with the Sphinx's magical machine juice. We learn that Ferdinand was actually a dog that the Sphinx had transformed into a machine. Using the port's destruction as a distraction, the Hods allegedly revolt in the city, leaving the ringdom in shambles. Edith learns that Pelphia's painting has been stolen and gets what information she can concerning the Hod King from the King of Pelphia. She then goes to Duke Wilhelm's house and rescues Maria and her daughter. Edith breaks the Duke's arm in the process and threatens a painful death should he attempt pursuit. The crew returns to the Sphinx's lair to find the heavy doors closed. This is very distressing, especially to Byron, but they continue on their mission to collect the rest of the Sphinx's paintings. Senlin, Taru, and Gol arrive at Luke Marat's camp to convince him of Senlin's sincere transformation into a Hod Zealot after telling him of the Sphinx's contractual trickery. This lie is helped by the knowledge that Senlin saved a Hod and tried to stop the firing squad from killing many more. The story ends with the revelation that the Hod King is actually a gigantic machine capable of tunneling through the tower. Our crew is divided. Valida is damaged, perhaps beyond repair. The Sphinx has gone dark, and Senlin is living minute to minute, hoping to not be unmasked for the traitor he really is. Much has been accomplished, but the crew is still walking at knife's edge, barely thwarting death and discovery at every turn. Okay, wow. Yeah, that's a lot. Okay, wow. (laughs) Yeah, that is a lot. So many things happened in (laughs) that book. I want to talk about Volita real quick. We're just going to jump straight to that. That was one of the most intense things that has happened in the last three books. I thought Volita had a bunch of plot armor, and maybe Volita does, but in that instance, she gets shot in the head. Oh, man, I thought she got shot to dead. What did you think? I thought she was dead. I really, I mean, you get shot in the head. Yeah. Right? And then Eren comes upon her and sees the destruction left over from their fight and the blood, a lot of blood pooling around her body. I was like... She's done. And then kills that prince with a coat oh rack. Oh my gosh. Like, and I bet, I don't know what sort of coat rack you had in mind, but I have like a little like shelf in my room that it's kind of square, but one of the corners of it has like a towering thing up. So I didn't imagine like a, a single coat rack, but kind of just like a big whole rack, like a shelf oh, and just like oh. jammed the corner of it through his, ch- it was grisly in my mind. <laughs> And a ginormous wound. I was thinking of that part in The Departed when Leonardo DiCaprio like jams that magazine rack in that guy's face and he oh, like, yeah, throws yeah. him through the fridge. I was kind of thinking of that. Yeah, Aaron is so badass. I love Aaron. Me too. She is awesome. Oh, and one thing that we forgot to mention in our recap, because obviously, I mean, we we're gonna <laughs> we we're gonna miss some small details in the <laughs> of recap. Course. But I mean, this isn't even that small of a detail, but Aaron and Anna 
that that little love affair oh there. yeah love i have that. That actually in my questions i was like what, oh really what do you think is gonna happen i don't know but i love it i love it so much like aaron is great i quickly becoming one of my favorite characters i like anna a lot i want to see more of anna i like how at the end of this book the crew is just a little bit different and it was a little bit different at the end of the last one. And it's just, yep. it's almost like this found family trope that's kind of happening. Yeah. Like everyone's kind of settling into their places with each other. And there's but real, real bonds evolving here. within those places. Yeah. And some oh. bonds are like growing and some are not lessening, but just like becoming different. Like the um, connection between each one, the roles that they play in each other's lives are kind of changing, especially I think a big changer event was Edith becoming captain. She kind of sees yeah. everyone's kind of starts seeing her as being a little bit different. I almost feel kind of a little sorry for Edith as she seems the, the loneliest of the crew. Right. I got that feeling, too. She doesn't get to go off with Aaron and Volita, but she makes a friend, too. But I mean, it doesn't. doesn't yeah, pan but then out her friend. Well. Yeah. <laughs> is that she has to kill her by ripping her own arm off and beating her to death with it. Uh, so cool. <laughs> Since most of this book takes place in one spot, what did you think about Pelthia? What were your, what were your thoughts on, on this, just the city as a whole? I think they're kind of probably the most normal them in the all of the tower because they're not at the very bottom and like the basement where they're just like a bunch of poor people or tourists being tricked into free beer. Right. It's like they're actually there actually is some power in Pelphia. They're just a, just wealthy enough that we kind of have like a, a regular almost arrangement of class systems and a, kind of a normal ish city like it's pompous and wealthy enough to be way too full of itself, but it's pretty regular. It was a good setting for what needed to happen in this uh, book. What did you think of Pelphia? I don't know. I, I was under the impression from the little that was said about this ringdom in the two books previous that Pelphia was a sort of like legitimate high society and it kind of is but there seems to be this sort of undercurrent of like perversion and superficiality that runs through everything like the entire population it's kind of gross like he talks it's about there's like there's like trash everywhere like no one's like picking up after themselves it's it almost felt to me like if you had left a city with quite a bit of money to its own devices you know, like there was no real accountability anywhere. There was no sense of responsibility or like real real work ethic. Or, it's just a bunch right. of spoiled rich people like running around in this city. Exactly. They're high enough in the tower to just think the world of themselves, you know? I think the scene that like really showed exactly the vibe that this was, was remember when Senlin is kind of trying to get into that. I think he's trying to get into that party and he's kind of dressed in a tuxedo and he's got the, the mask on and stuff. Uh -huh. And there's like a bunch of people crowded at the gate trying to get into this party. Everyone that's trying to gain access is being lifted on some kind of elevation device, like a chair or like a table or like a big structure or something. And they're all jostling around. And it's like total chaos. And then one of them like falls off. And it's just it's such a good way of showing that like these people are all so pompous and this whole society that they've kind of built up is kind of like being held together with like popsicle sticks. You know, it's just it's not really like actual high society. It's being held together by the thread, the pretentious threads that uh, the very same threads that weave their clothing that kind of holds their <laughs> <laughs> holds their yeah. society together as well. You know, they're just really in to surface level things and just being very um, materialistic. I like watching Volita navigate all of that. She's just like, I don't care about any of this. Like, you're any all ridiculous. This. Like, this is so stupid. I thought it was, a, like you said, like a good setting. And, and, and also, like you said, I mean, they're up on like the fifth fifth rung 
but that's not really that high if you think about it. No, not at all. Out of what, 66? There's 59 more uh, right. levels of this tower. So <laughs> I think at some point, too, I can't remember exactly where it was in the book, but somebody kind of referred to Pelphia as like a bottom rung level. Uh-huh. It's like they they think that they're really up high and like they're this very high class thing, but they're not. And they just happen to have a really low, super low underclass, which is the Hods. Right. The juxtaposition between them and the lower realms allows them to look at themselves as very high society. Yeah. But they're really, I think any of the levels above them would just call them posers. They're just trying so hard. Like when they show up, um, when the Sphinxes, the art, the state of art shows up there and like they're welcomed with much fanfare and like basically a parade and the king is kind of being all silly like they're just trying so hard and the king even mentions um you know i'm glad that the sphinx realized that this was the place <laughs> to come to you know like we are really the the happening place when it's like man you have 59 ringdoms above you probably all of them being more high society than yourself with the exception of like boskville or whatever that where all the account the boring accountant lives i love how the sphinx had senlin pose as a really boring person from a really boring place <laughs> you're going to be posing as somebody kind of really kind of like you honestly right <laughs> but it really honestly like i mean i don't want to dig too deep into it but like it really kind of made a lot of uh, Senlin's other qualities kind of shine because he was posing as that, but he didn't. He was he's not really like that. You know, when they when they serve him like lukewarm water, you you get the impression in like the very first book that Senlin is uptight enough to only want to drink that. But no, he like knocks back some booze later because he's right. like stressed out. You know, and it's just it kind of really sh props him up a little bit more. And it's like okay, at least he's not like this bad. You know, he's not this much of a bore. He's not. You know, Senlin's got a lot of bite to him especially Absolutely. in this book. I mean, there are multiple moments in this book where I'm surprised at Senlin's proactivity, you know, like the initiative that he takes. And, and not only that, but how he sees himself. So this is from page 335, and this is where Senlin realizes that the Sphinx sent him to Pelphia, not necessarily thinking that he would have any amount of success discovering why her butterflies were going missing, but because he would probably actually be ousted and thrown into the Black Trail. And he says, Senlin saw clearly that the Sphinx had put him in an impossible position quite on purpose. Then he says about himself, he was the sort of man who climbed immeasurable towers and got to the bottom of bottomless libraries. Yet despite his obstinance, Senlin had proved time and time again to be adaptable and resourceful in a manner few were. And that's like him kind of talking to himself, which I think is a really cool change of the kind of bumbling, insecure oaf almost that he viewed himself as in the first two books. I mean, like, think of everything he's gone through. I mean, because people kind of chide him sometimes and they're like, wow, you've really made no shortage of enemies here, Tom. Like, oh, my God, you're like <laughs> you're kind of like failing your way to the top here. But at the same time, like the obstacle, you got to hand it to him, right? Like the, the amount of obstacles that he's gone through, some of it by luck, obviously, and some of it he's kind of like he's had a good crew. He's had good friends. He's had a lot of help from people that are way more powerful than anybody that's maybe not on his side, like uh, in particular the Sphinx. But at the same time, he has shown a lot of initiative and, and he yes. has shown a lot of ingenuity and taken a lot of risks that have panned out that might not have panned out. It's really cool to watch this growth. But 
But I do want to just throw this in here real quick. And it is a moment of self-realization for him. He's able to, uh, in hindsight, notice what he did here. But when he talks to Maria, which I think you and I should probably talk about right now. Yeah, that I whole have a conversation. Oh, okay, cool, cool. He realizes much later that he was being so self-absorbed in that conversation he was having with her. And I, I went back and read the conversation and it's totally true. He's talking about himself the, the whole entire time. time. He, he barely asks her any other questions other than like ones that are directly related to why he's there. And obviously they don't have a lot of time to talk or anything, but it's just, I felt bad for him. I, I really did. Like, I, I mean, also I felt like he should have been smarter and he probably mm -hmm. should have like taken a breath or something. But like, I, I did feel really bad that he, in hindsight, was realizing, oh my God, like if I would have just let her talk, if I would have just like... Not only listened, but listened, capital L listened, you know, yeah. like listened with my ears sort of thing. You know, he, And Volito was able to figure it out immediately. Right. I mean, she was able <laughs> to figure it out without even really talking to Maria. I mean, she was pretty perceptive. Yeah, Senlin missed out. You know, she was saying so many things by saying so few things. And Senlin missed it all entirely with his focus upon himself. Uh, and it was cool that in retrospect, he did realize, because I also didn't realize that she was, like, I knew that she was probably trying to protect him or something. There was something at foot there, but I didn't realize that she was actually telling him things that she wasn't saying with her words. Yeah, I was fooled too. I thought. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, we're just, maybe we're just dumb guys. Like, uh, yeah, I don't like know. Sunlin. I mean, Senlin was, we were in Senlin's brain being taken on Senlin's journey. And like, he was very much focused on himself and his own trek through the tower and the mistakes that he made which i thought that he was a little unnecessarily harsh on himself for the mistakes Maybe. he kept making like all these mistakes and it's like bro you have failed your way to the top of the tower and in, in fashion that no one else has like what do you think about his self-deprecation i think he was doing it so that in a way it was it was him kind of being like, all right, I know that that you've probably made some mistakes, Maria, but like so have I. He's just like assuming that Maria has right. also like, you know what I mean? Like he's, I think he was like preemptively trying to uh, uh, forgive, forgive her. her for like sure. for you know what I mean, which was also just like super self absorbed and <laughs> shitty of him, right? And it was coming from a place of like, and also I hope that you're preemptively forgiving me for all my mistakes. <laughs> totally, yeah. I mean, uh, that's I mean, I guess that's kind of a hard take on it. But that was what I was thinking reading okay. it. Two questions. One, were you onto the Sphinx in that she was sending Senlin to Pelphia for ulterior motives and that she was going to push him, that she thought that he was going to go to the, the Black Trail? And two, what is her end game there? I don't quite get it. I come, I'm kind of flirting around it in my brain, but what, what are your thoughts on that? I didn't think that initially because kind of like you said, we are in Senlin's brain. Um, it seemed like the Sphinx, while while worried that Senlin was going to go off and do this, like when I was reading it, it seemed like the Sphinx did have kind of full confidence that Senlin was reliable yeah. to a point. And that's why she was sending him out. That was kind of like my whole thing. And um, the Sphinx has these cameras everywhere, for lack of a better word, like microphones, like ways of making sure Senlin doesn't do this. So in my head, like when I was initially reading those first few chapters, I, I was thinking Senlin's not going to get as far in this as he thinks he's going to. And the Sphinx has some sort of leverage or control over this situation as it stands. So I wasn't really expecting that at all. And like, maybe that's not the case. But let's assume that it is so I can answer your next question, which is why? Like, why would she yeah, knowingly what's her let end him? Game? I think what it is, is that while Senlin was able to get some information 
the Sphinx knew there wasn't enough information in Pelthia, and there was really no other like organic way to introduce him to the Black Trail, which is where he ultimately oh, needed to go. She needs so, like an inside man, right? So, and he wasn't going to do it willingly because he's maybe she maybe she let him get it out of his system. Like she's super conniving. Like she's thinking like totally. ten steps ahead here. So I think that ultimately she needs Senlin in this position um, of kind of like subservience to Mara, so that she can have someone that close to him that is reliable. Right. She's like your true use to me will be if you can somehow use your incredible, seemingly endless, beguiling wit to get on <laughs> the inside of Luke Mara's team. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And he's. Fairly expendable, in my opinion. Totally. Right. Like, I mean, she's got she's got all of this influence. She's got um, I mean, she's got Edith, who is just objectively more capable than Senlin. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like I feel like um at worst, the Sphinx sees Senlin as kind of a useful idiot. Um, mm-hmm. and then at, at best, someone that she can like put a decent amount of confidence in, but is uh mostly expendable and like not really that big of a deal. And I think that that's that's like another reason why she she was willing to show her face to Senlin and Volita because you know it's mentioned in the book that like Senlin and Volita have like different dispositions than uh, Edith and Aaron. Uh, she's treating each person the way that they need to be treated in order to fulfill her own ends. Like she's she's right. a really really cool character. Yeah. After listening to your answer of my question, you're totally right. I'm kind of like taking it a step farther now in my brain. It's a full-on win-win for the Sphinx, her plan with Senlin. If Senlin loses and ends up dying along the Black Trail, what happens? Well, all of her, all of his crew, Edith, Felita, Adam, which we'll talk about later, um, you know, that whole crew <laughs> gets turned into zealots. She has a martyr now. You're like, oh, now yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Working for her as just opposed to like contractually working for her. And then if he wins and actually gets inside, which he's done, then now she has an inside man and she's got, you know, he's far more valuable to her. So, yeah, that's a that was a really good, good stroke of uh, genius on the Sphinx's part. What did you think about the blinder that Willem put on Senlin's head before oh, making him goodness. take that trail? I hated that. I hated that so much. How did he not freak out like way more than he did? Like, I don't know. I Maybe mean, he was just like kind of stunned and didn't know. I would have lost it. There's no, oh my God, I hated that. Like, oh, if no. you read the first chapter really, really in detail of him, his first chapter with Taru on the Black Trail, he is freaking the fuck you're out. You're right. You're right. Like, yeah. What is he singing? Or like he has having, um, he's having Taru tell him what the messages mean, interpret the hod. Like he is doing everything in his power to not have a freaking fit because he is i think very much freaking out inside he's just like hold it together hold it together there's no way i mean it's oh it was already gosh. it's already like bad enough that you're going into that situation but for for the person who is basically holding your wife hostage to put a bell over your head basically and just oh man that was oh my god it was just it was, a... we're, dra- we're like dragging senlin as low as he can go at, yeah. at that. i felt so bad for him me too. It, he even mentions like almost comedically at one point, like what'll happen is if he, is it throw up? He was like thinking like, what if happens if he throws oh, up yeah. or something? And he's yeah. like, <laughs> he's so screwed. I don't know. I'm not very claustrophobic of a person, but I do really value my eyesight. Hearing. That's just a, t- yeah. And not only, okay, it's one thing to be blind in your own home, but it's another thing to be in very, ter- very dangerous territory and be without your sight like oh my gosh you know he keeps thinking that he's gonna stumble off of a cliff i know what would he have done without 
Taru there. Yeah. Like just okay. wandered around with that thing. Oh my God. Nope. It was almost nice of Wilhelm when he takes Senlin, buckets him, and throws him onto the hot trail that he gives him a friend. Like it was almost weird, like elongating his suffering or something. I wasn't quite sure what his game was there. He was like, ah, I'm going to give you the worst possible scenario, but also like, here's a buddy to help you. I mean, I think that he just was so confident that the black trail is like the worst possible place to be. going to eat him alive. It just didn't even matter, really. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he was so he was so rushed to do that that he forgot to even brand him. That was such a wild scene. Like, I wasn't even expecting Senlin to run, really. I don't know what it was, but for some reason, I just felt like he wasn't going to. And then when he started to, he's like swinging down into the Coliseum and stuff. I was just like, damn, <laughs> look at him go. Like, this I know, is crazy. He, he's proven his like a physical level upness a few times in the fight once with the Hods. You know, he like takes on two guys and does a great job. And then when he's running out, he's like throws himself off a balcony, lands yeah. on a couple of people. He's, he's killing his game. I mean, he did train with Aaron for a pretty long time. Yeah, that's um, true. And he's been in like multiple sword fights and yeah just yeah he's it makes sense i was just he's for some reason pirate. right like for some reason i was just like oh there he goes wow i fully did not expect him to get away though no do you like how he was ousted by that dancer woman who turned out to be the gal and you know it's funny i was gonna ask you uh if there was anything about the book that you didn't like um so i'll just answer my own question real okay, quick and before then I'll answer you answer that, yours I do yeah. Have. yeah i mean um I really don't have too many criticisms about this. I really do feel like this is just a masterwork. It's just such a tightly wound plot. I mean, but anyway, yeah, there's a few things like, and this wouldn't be a nerdy fantasy podcast without digging into some stuff, even if there's small details. But yeah, like the daughter is just pretty convenient. You know what I mean? Like, just, yeah. just, I mean, there's like how many people in this tower? Is there like a separate book we're going to read of, of like her escapades <laughs> to like get to this point where she's like now a belly dancer in this like... Because you can't even land at Pelfia. I don't know. I thought that was just kind of like, ah, oh, all right. Like, yeah, I guess like we'll bring her back so she can... I don't know. Um, and another one was Senlin and Toru just happening across <laughs> Fingal. Not only that, but right before they happen upon the HUD that Senlin saved. Yeah. <laughs> it's like half a That's dance, a really half a good. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean it's like um you know he wastes no words in explaining that the the black trail is like hundreds of miles of like these interweaving trails with like a thousands and thousands of these hods like all over the place and it's just like it's awfully awfully convenient but you know what i I do want to say this like we don't know the extent to which the sphinx is really planning everything here so it could have all been like this could all have a perfectly reasonable explanation right the rest of the plot is so well put together like i really wouldn't fault bancroft for these like little flashes of coincidence and convenience because they they push the story on in a believable way the rubber band that is my beliefs willingness to be suspended hasn't been broken by this right you know it's not it's not like ruining the story for me but this is like i said in a in a past i think it was the first episode we did on this it's just like <laughs> convenience like really just bugs me sometimes or it's just like oh cool i oh, guess we'll just do convenient. that yeah yeah cool yeah. you're there um but whatever that's what i mean that's really my only i feel you but it's the slight annoyance at the yes that's very convenient i think in my mind is offset by the awesome lesson that josiah bancroft is attempting to portray there even though it's weeks months or even years in the past the past especially past misdeeds have a way of coming back to biting you like you will get yours you know damn it'll come back and hit you (laughs) totally yeah that's a really good way of putting it for sure all right so things that i didn't like about the book (laughs) 
And I'm only going to say thing. There shouldn't really have been an S at the end of that sentence because there's only one. And I think that you're going to disagree with me. I didn't like Felita the first 200, 300 pages. Really? Like, honestly, until about the, until about when she gets shot in the head. <laughs> like the theater is fine. Maybe a little bit before then, but she just, okay. Do you remember in the winter night when Vasya and book like first in the first like one and a half books, Vasya is just kind of selfish, only thinking about herself and doesn't think about what her actions, how they can affect her loved ones or anyone around her the entire time before she kind of like grows out of that and is like, no, I'm going to do what I don't want to do for the sake of my family. And I feel like Valida has yet to learn that lesson. Like she was just like annoying and just being like flitting all over the place. And they're like, you need to stay here, Valida. And she'd be like, okay. And the next time she's just running out the window, doesn't care about anything. Like, I don't know. She just seemed childish. And I was very annoyed with her a lot of this book. I mean, you could make the case that that's the point <laughs> yeah like I, I see what you're saying for sure it's like she's not very likable but still a good character obviously mm-hmm. but yeah i mean it, it is i think i i felt a little bit of that because she's really not holding back like at all and no. she, there's a lot of people and a lot of eyes on her and this is like a really crucial mission yeah and yeah I, th- I think i see what you're saying there yeah she's like running around on the rooftops and stuff like, yeah when she goes in to get uh introduced to the king she like says something and she was like, she says to herself to justify it. Well, like, well, Byron said to like make a statement or like, I don't know, but it was like obviously the opposite of what he was actually meaning her. And he would never have wondered. And it works out for her. I was kind of annoyed that it worked out for her. I kind of wanted like everyone to just be like, who are you? And then of course she charms them and it worked out. And I don't know if there's anything that I have to say that would be critical about the book is just like, Valida annoyed me. <laughs> I mean, I think that Valida has built up trauma from from the situation she was in in the first book and she saw firsthand like how fake people could be how willing to turn on people and stab people in the back people could be by the time she gets into pelphia she's just sort of had it like she doesn't want to she's she's over it like she's over all of this she's over all this like superficiality you know the idea of like putting on a show for people she's been doing that for how long now she doesn't want to do it anymore i mean it, it it really makes sense but I do totally. I mean, like, it's like you, you could have like held like 10% of that back. Yeah. Like she wasn't even allowed on the bridge because they wouldn't didn't like trust her to not like break <laughs> the rules and climb things like she loves climbing so much. Again, it was probably needed and she'll probably learn like I was. I mean, this is really like dark of me. But there was like a little bit of me that was like <laughs> when she oh learns <laughs> that the Duke's daughter died by trying to emulate her reckless actions, jumping across the roofs, you know, it was like, yeah, Valida, that's what happens when you don't think about what, how the effect your actions are going to have. You ended up killing someone who was, you know, being an idiot, but like still. Well, and also like got, well, no, no, that wasn't her fault. Actually, I should not. Yeah, none of that was her fault. What was her fault? Like her getting shot. That wasn't her fault. Oh, yeah. Like at yeah. all. Yeah. That was chilling to uh, to go into a quote that was just like, gave me chills, was the prince gets her into the room, right? And he's got her backed up. And he was talking about how he, uh, like a scarf, he's on an airship and a scarf gets taken out of his hand by the wind. And he was like, and the wind doesn't ask it just takes what it wants oh, right yeah, then like no. a little chill went up my spot. i was like oh no 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 this is bad that guy i, I love how the prince god has come up and so it's great oh that was, that was so I, great. I hope i hope he's not alive i hope nothing happened like it's just yeah, please don't have him get red-handed that guy sucks so let's let's just we're done what did you think of duke willem man like i really thought he was pretty decent at first 
Like, I was fooled. I mean, honestly, there was just nothing really that sketchy about him. He seemed to really love Maria. I don't know. I, I think that would have been a simpler story for that to have sort of just been the situation. Because mm -hmm. then that's all buttoned up, right? Like, Senlin can continue on with his mission for the Sphinx. Yeah. Maria's happy. Everyone's taken care of. Like, I really, I don't know why, but like, and I, and I know we had a whole you know this the rest of this book and a whole other book to read so like probably wasn't exactly the situation but like some part of me deep down was like maybe everybody's good in this particular yeah. scenario and kind of like, stoked about it but i think and i could be wrong about this but i think over the course of these books like bancroft is constantly shining a light on not only dictators and the corrupt nature of a ruling class but at least in Willem's case, what kind of a face like abusers can put on? Mm -hmm. Like they're willing yes. to hurt people to get what they want, but they're not always terrible on the surface. Like they don't wear their disdain for them, like people beneath them playing on their face. Like they're affable out in public, but they're horrible behind closed doors. Like I have a feeling that was like really validating for people reading this. He really is the fucking worst he's the but he tricked worst. me like he tricked me he tricked me too. i was charmed right yeah and i, th I think th i don't know if bancroft was like consciously trying to do that but i think like willem is kind of like a little microcosm for the way that the tower really is like even senlin coming to it in Ooh, the very well beginning said. of the series yeah it's like right when he gets there he thinks this is going to be great i've heard nothing but good things about this this is the pillar of civilization this is awesome but it's done nothing but hurt him since he's got right. there rotten to its core yeah, shiny this, on the, the outside the tower is cornering people and silencing them and constantly abusing them and you know and that's that's what willem is doing too yeah, I, mm -hmm. I don't. Willem was a really interesting character for sure, but like, I just, I think it was like that scene when he's sitting down with Senlin. Mar, he says that he's he's convinced. Not Maria has like decided. you know decided. It was like this weird choice of words where he was kind of like I, I talked her through it or whatever, you know. And um, Senlin catches him on it too. He calls him. Yeah, on yeah, and then he kind of loses it and that's like another trait of people yeah, that control. are um that are very insecure and very like privileged and you know what i mean like the slightest thing will like tip them off you right. know and like they'll, you see the madman super... underneath yeah i don't like willem anymore no. and i would really like for him to die like that God, would be super so cool satisfying at the end to have edith just go in there break his arm throw him through a window yeah, that was the best <laughs> marvelous just and then just she tells marvelous. him like if you even try if you even attempt to try to find us i'm gonna come back here i'm gonna fucking kill you <laughs> <laughs> i love edith edith is Me my is, edith is my second favorite character really who's your first my my okay, very finish, favorite finish, character? Finish, finish, no no I, can, I, I mean i, I just i love edith so much like um and you know kind of going back to what we were talking about before i mean um she did feel very like lonely she misses Senlin. She's got kind of mixed feelings about it. She doesn't like it in the tower. You know, no. she's not. <laughs> she she's a like, farmer. Yeah. Um, and, and she's like in this enclosed space. Edith is hands down the most capable person in yeah. this entire series. Besides like the most well-rounded. Speaking of Edith, oh, uh, we'll go, we'll go to my first, favorite, we'll, we'll oh, to my okay, favorite okay. character later. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. Okay. Um, but speaking of Edith, I really wanted to ask, uh, what was up with the conversation between Edith and the Sphinx before they go to Pelphia 
the Sphinx shows her like some some robots that you know are like you know, machines that like didn't really pan out or something. And these like you know the Sphinx is like these are all of my failures. Like I'm <laughs> even I am fallible or like whatever graveyard. or whatever. Yeah, whatever that was. Um, but then the Sphinx shows her like this room or something with a ton of lightning in it. Is all of that lightning kind of bottled up in a really unstable way? And the only way to stabilize it is the bridge of Babel? Is that kind of like what's going on here? This is a wild conversation. And I think one of the reasons that the Sphinx is letting Edith in on the fact that she has so much is also the same reason why she introduces the Red Hand right then during that scene as her captain. And she was like, we're going to need the red hand in order to fight the oncoming war. And I think it's to, to tell you that something is innately different about the red hand and he possesses something like it's not just a warrior that they're going to need in order to beat the in order to fight the oncoming fight. It's the juice that he has in him. The Sphinx calls it history in a bottle what and it can f- slow time. It can. So I think I don't know whatever is behind the door like the bridge of Babel that they're going to use all the um, paintings to get into. Like, it's crazy that it's more than this, like this yeah. in and of itself. So I, I think it's something that they're going to need. to. I think the Sphinx knows the Sphinx knew that something was going to happen to her or she was going to need to go. Whatever the reason is that she's not opening the doors. I think she was like, I need them to know that this exists because this will be the fuel that allows this mechanism, technology, whatever to work inside of the bridge of the babel when they get it open and i'm not going to be able to show them there she like leads them to it and then she like kind of tells them a little bit about what it's made of and kind of what it does very vaguely but like i can slow time or it affects time is the red hand the bricklayer oh my goodness there's no way. That's no. a wild prediction. Yeah, that's that is way a wild out of left prediction, field. But, but I mean, it's he's really important, obviously. He seems really to have important. some sort of other... Like, there's some reason that... He's not just our normal Wakeman. Like, that, no. like there's no way. No. All right, so no, yeah, I mean, not. I guess we'll have to find out. Like, maybe there's just not yeah. enough information And right she now. says even that she was like, wow, I didn't know that you had this much of this stuff. She was like, oh, this? This is just a, a drop in the ocean. And then she lights it on fire. She shows them what happens to it when she lights it on fire, which it like almost becomes like alive and like wriggles around. It kind of is like energy, but not. Well, she mentions that if all of this stuff is uh, becomes more unstable than it already is, I guess it's like a it's like a nuke. Right. right. I mean, like that's basically like she's just like it's going to destroy everything. If we don't. So, I mean, we've got higher stakes here. This isn't just this isn't just Senlin saving his wife anymore. This is the whole whole kitten caboodle. Okay, maybe this is linked with a question I want to ask Sorry. ask you. No, no, this is good. The kitten caboodle. Is, oh my god. No, no, no. Okay, so I think this is this is very relevant here. Um, a question I had for you was the red hand. We're privy to him like alone. We're seeing him just like reading from the troglodyte book. He's laughing at the author's getting some things incorrect as he remembers what the troglodytes are actually like like he knows that they're wrong and right how the hell would he know that like they apparently died off like thousands of years ago or something dude maybe he's the bricklayer maybe when he goes he mentions his death multiple times so he was dead for a long time and he talks really knowingly about what it's like to be dead yeah so maybe he learned about the beginning of time and troglobites from 
then when he was everything and nothing and everywhere and nowhere? Like, was that? What are are your thoughts? I don't know. Um, I think, like we said in the last episode, if this starts to get timey-wimey, which I'm I'm fine with it, I feel confident and comfortable reading all of this. Uh, I mean, I've got full confidence in Josiah Bancroft, but like, please let it be drip-fed. Because I don't even know how much more I go. Oh my god! I don't know how much more of this I can. <laughs> I can only stomach like so many weird things happening. But I bet whatever it is, it'll make sense. But that, that is the trouble with um, recapping and analyzing books in a series is that even though we've got questions, uh, even between the two of us, we might not have the whole picture here to be able to answer them. So let's just uh, let's just put that over on the shelf for a second. You know, we'll we'll talk about that in the next book. Okay. Okay. I got a wild prediction. <laughs> Okay. A wild one. Okay. <laughs> okay. So what if Senlin is perhaps the bricklayer oh. and the Sphinx, the Sphinx is Edith. What? Well, no, this, the, the Sphinx is the bricklayer's granddaughter or whatever. We think. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But I don't know what anything is. Yeah. But she doesn't show Edith her face. Maybe that's one of the reasons because there's oh, some timey wimey Wow, that is a really you know, like... wild prediction. Like, <laughs> I know. damn, that is so much. <laughs> <laughs> we, got, we got weird with that one. Yeah, like if Josiah Bancroft is like listening to this, he's just like, you guys, you guys oh are so goodness. ridiculous. But maybe I mean, you, you could know, be right. I don't, you've been right before. I don't know. I have on but some yeah. ridiculous, but I've also way more often been way wrong. Uh, let's talk about Adam for a second. Or let's talk about, about the lack Adam? of Adam. Yeah. <laughs> Were you surprised that there was no Adam? Um, not really. Oh, sad. I, I guess like I was kind of waiting for an Adam chapter at some point, like early on in the book. But then when I realized we're going in like big swaths here, like I don't know. It's just Adam didn't seem to fit into all of this because once nope. I realized that most of this was going to be taking place in Pelfia, I was kind of like, ah, Adam's not going to be here. But but Valeta Valita screams his name when she wakes up. At the very end of the book, oh yeah, which was does. also really weird, and yeah. I don't know what the hell that. I, I wish I could. I don't know. I have no. I don't even have like a prediction about that. I have, mm. Like maybe she dropped into some kind of weird unconscious time vortex or something. I don't know. Yeah, because the biggest no mystery at this point in my mind. Well, there's so freaking no, many. It's Adam, Adam. Like it's even Adam. Say this it's big, the but biggest it's Adam and the whole Adam. thing yeah. on the top of the tower. Yeah, those people have technology. They've got. Who even knows what's going on up there? Okay, so I'm going to double down on my prediction at the end of last episode where I said, we're not going to learn about Adam until he tells us past tense about his story. Like, we're not going to ever have Adam chapters until he comes back into the main crew in a spectacular way, saving everyone. Interesting. Yeah, what do you think is going to happen to Adam? I can't say anything. Because I already cracked into the next one. So. Oh my god! Damn it! Am I like immediately <laughs> I'm sorry, wrong? Like of you course, I'm me. immediately yeah. wrong. <laughs> I mean, I was I was wrong about uh, Senlin about uh, oh, uh, you're trying uh, to make me Olivet. feel better. Thank you. Well, I was I was wrong about Olivet um, not being Senlin's kid. Oh yeah, I was super wrong, wrong about that. that. I didn't yeah, think yeah. it was either. Okay, let me ask you this: What do you think? And I have a prediction here too. Okay. What do you think <laughs> is going to happen? But I want yours first. Okay. Um, between the whole Edith, Maria, Senlin. It's not like oh, a love man. triangle per se, but like there's some nasty, there's some garbage that needs to be taken out before that storyline. I have no. Okay. So I do. I wrote it down because I do have a prediction. Oh, wow. Here. For that. Yeah. yeah wow. Yeah. I nailed um, that. It's not really even much of a predict. Here's what I wrote down. I said, 
I think Senlin and Edith are going to get together. I know Senlin and Maria have a baby, but they can make it work. <laughs> I don't know. I just want Edith and Senlin to get together. <laughs> so, like, obviously, um, Maria and Senlin, like, they work, but I don't think they work as well as Edith and Senlin. Right. And maybe it's just because of what I've seen, right? Like, we haven't had any Maria chapters, which I think we might get in the second, in the, in the next book, which would be awesome, because I would love to see why Maria is good enough for Senlin. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I just, I just want edith and senlin to get together like i just love edith so much and um i've been with her through this whole journey and seen her thought processes on things and like she really cares so much about senlin and ah like she's looking around this whole ringdom for him and she's got his hat like yeah i don't don't even the guy that she's into she can't fully like or even kind of commit herself to him because entire time they're trying to get his wife back you know right what a position Uh, one of the other reasons that i love edith so much is because she goes she goes and gets maria right she didn't have to do that no that was selfless i'm sure part of her was like this is part of the mission or whatever i don't know but like she goes in there and storms into that building and grabs maria and it's just like you let's go i know you don't want to be here oh you got a baby shit you know, right. like, ah, uh, man, like that's, uh, that's brutal. Can you imagine uh-huh. like being in Edith's, Edith's shoes right there and like realizing the gravity of the situation now? Like, like Senlin oh, is nowhere no. to be found. You know, not only like are like is your personal um, kind of like hope at, at getting with somebody that you really care about, that, that avenue seemed fairly clear and now it's totally clogged up by this baby. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I love it. <laughs> but like that's crushing enough as it is. But Edith is such an awesome person. Like her her almost her immediate thoughts seem to be like, oh, this just got like way worse. And not even just on my romantic love life, you know, front. This is just now this is just bad. Because we don't know where Senlin is. That's a that's a whole can of worms. I don't know what's gonna happen. I think Edith and Senlin are gonna get together. That's my prediction. It's cause I want it. Here's what I think is gonna happen, and here's what I hope is gonna happen. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay here's what i think is gonna things. i know okay here's here's what i think is gonna happen i think maria and senlin will end the story together and edith will die in a heroic way somewhere along the line oh here's what i hope to have happen senlin gets with edith and sails off into like space or something in his new awesome like spaceship and maria gets with like adam or somebody and (laughs) it's all okay it's all okay you know i was thinking adam might also be the bricklayer too because he's like really anywhere oh maybe i wrote down here that maybe senlin dies (sighs) and the crew stays together and takes care of all of it like a big family that was kind of like one of the things that i thought might happen is that senlin would ultimately die but leave his baby like in the care of these like new family that he's created maybe all of us the sphinx <laughs> okay, Chad, we gotta Sorry, we gotta, gotta get off that. We gotta keep we gotta keep all of this into like <laughs> the the realm of what we've read so far. And not your psychotic <laughs> like, maybe land. Like like yeah, like literally like Scotty Pippen could drop down to the tower yeah. and save like I don't know, Chad. Like I don't Sure, know. sure, sure. Fine, fine, fine. <laughs> maybe Doctor Who will show up and it'll maybe all have been very a dream. possible. Yeah, I have no idea. Um but yeah, whatever happens, no harm better come to byron or i will sue bancroft for emotional damage because byron is my favorite character 
he is in a this great... book at least not in the whole series but in this particular book i love byron so much i agree with you fully oh yeah i mean senlin's probably my favorite he just i love him so much but like byron is if i had to pick someone not the main character right and byron would probably be it the reason i love byron so much is because he's at first this really really stuffy guy he's exactly the stereotype even without if you just put aside that he's got a, a stag for a head <laughs> a stag so cool so cool um i i see that so clearly in my mind oh me too right? he has such a heart like he cares a lot about this crew but he's got like this allegiance to the sphinx and mm -hmm. he knows the sphinx like intimately or so it seems he takes on senlin's message to edith even though he knows that he's not supposed to and he would be in a lot of trouble for that like right. you know, the, the sphinx has you know only so much control of everything he tells senlin or he tells edith that senlin is leaving and gives them the opportunity to say goodbye to each other because the sphinx doesn't want it to happen and he even has his own little arc in there yeah. You know, it's not enough that all these other characters have their arcs and they're all really strong and good, but Byron, he, you know, he's like, ah, oh, I'm just, I'm going to go back and, you know, it's, what did he say? He said something like, like, what would be worse? Like me dying, protecting my friends or being captured and tortured and paraded in front of people that hate me and stuff. And he's just like, you know what? No, I'm going to go back and I'm going to fight and I'm going to do the right thing here. And yeah, that was a really big moment of him coming out and deciding to actually kick some ass, which he does. And he's so like witty and cool. And like, he's not just like this stuck up butler there for comic relief. And that's why I liked him so much is because he could have been, and right. he wasn't. And I like this, this, the stag head thing. Like, right. <laughs> oh, that's just fantastic. He, uh, he kind of exemplifies society you know like what it is to be human even though he's like the least human of them all in his attempt to be so human he kind of you know he doesn't need to be high society and kind of not high society but he's teaching a lot of etiquette like he's very yeah. well informed on on culture yeah, he has and like this should be done this way you yeah. know things should be done the right way and those are the things that kind of some of the foundational principles of civilization that kind of separate us from like hunter gatherers you know some of these rules that we can kind of like all agree to abide by that make us civil you know and he's yeah. really into that and it's interesting in how that he's the one that is like the least human of them all yeah that's a really good notice but nothing nothing better happened to i will i'll burn all my when books he lost an antler, i was very upset very protective of byron yes everybody else can die yeah, Except even for Ferdinand, which was a loss. Oh, yeah, that sucked. That was really yeah, sad. It was like an actual dog. And it was I like, know. Oh, Why'd you man. have to do that? I know. Ferdinand was already cool enough without you making him a dog, Josiah. <laughs> and we don't learn about it. Until what would like, really hit dead. them the hardest here? Oh. And he like playfully smashes all the soldiers to death. Oh, man. So the red hand, like lobotomizing everyone. I just I <laughs> like really, happily. Yeah. I really enjoyed. I think he's a really interesting character. He's by no means my favorite, but he's just like a very, very interesting. He's like he's he's gone to the other side and comes back and he knows so much. And like he's the sort of guy who like knows the the meaning of the universe. And then when like you learn that he did 50 years later, he's like, Well, you never asked. And you're like, what? I have, I have a quote here from, okay. from that actually. Then you kind of touched on it, but I wanted to read it because I really liked it a lot. <clears throat> and this is uh this is when uh like Edith kind of asks the red hand like what what it was like to die or whatever. And oh, he yeah. says he says, I was present at the beginning of time. I was there when the first coals of the universe turned red and burned for an age. I was dust floating in a dead black nothing for half an eternity. 
I was a star when it formed. I was a star when it died. I was a ray of light bolting across the galaxy for 10,000 years, only to be caught and devoured by an oak leaf. I love this so much. You know, I'm, I'm not at all certain what happens when it's our time to go, but what a nice thought that is. From dust floating in dead black to being turned into light, shooting across the galaxy to be eaten up by a leaf. Like the cycle goes on just in a different form. And I think among a few other things, but this being the chief reason, that may be one of the things that contributed to the Red Hand's sudden kind of change in temperament. Like he, he like he's all chilled out now. He's cheery. Also, it kind of reminded me of, uh, maybe this is the real reason I loved it so much, but it kind of reminded me of what Gandalf says to Pippin in Return of the King. White shores and beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. So that kind of reminded Beautiful. me of that. I know that part is so good. <laughs> so good. I can like hear Gandalf saying that. In my yeah, head. right. Because they're talking about like being strong or brave or something, right? Yeah, and he's like, that doesn't sound so bad. And yeah. Gandalf's like, nah, no, it's not. It's it's all good, man. Like, yeah. it's all, don't worry. Whatever happens die, here, it's yeah, fine. it's gonna be great. Yeah, and I just I I really like that. Like the red hand does not necessarily need to be the character that he is. He was kind of the villain at first, and then he got kind of like, I'm starting to really think that maybe he is the bricklayer, actually. Uh, me too, actually. Yeah, and and obviously we could be wrong, but let's just, for this episode, let's just revel in how cool that would actually be, because he yeah. seems to be the one that's the most in the know about everything, except for maybe totally. the Sphinx. Because he was saying ridiculous shit. Before. Even in the first book. Yeah, even in yeah. the first book. Like he was saying, he, I want to actually go back and read it, because he said this line, he accosts Senlin in his room at nighttime and he says, I am the something in the night. I am that he goes all, all of these riddling self pronunciations. And it's yeah. like, what do you have a favorite quote? Um, I do actually. Let's, I mean, let her rip. God, I have so many, but <laughs> yeah, no, read one. Yeah. Okay. So two of them, one of them is very short and the other one is a little bit longer and it's one of the beginning of the chapter. Yeah. Uh, totally. Quips. So the first, too. Oh, nice. The first one is, it says, it's perfectly all right to not be perfect. A chip or a crack can be precious too. And it's when Senlin is talking about or remembering Maria and her broken tea set. Oh, he's remembering after the play. He remembers the tea set and he's like, oh, it's in the play. And he's like, oh, no, she told him about the tea set, meaning she got kind of intimate with them. I love that. It's perfectly all right to not be perfect. A chip or a crack can be precious too. Kind of yeah. your your mistakes and your imperfections can add to your perfection. And it's a I weird. Like it's a, a it's a it's a lofty goal to strive for, and probably yeah. probably not worth the effort. Honestly, yes. <laughs> Did you uh, notice that the name of the play was "The Heart Is Lost When Love Is Found"? It's so yeah. like terrible and also wonderful at the same right. time. Yeah, I like that. I did notice that. Yeah, that was really good. Um, okay, so the other one was the a little quip at the beginning of the chapter. It says, oh, how airmen love to say our stars are wrong. They call nature the supreme artist, apparently forgetting that nature also paints our deck chairs with bird droppings and our backs with hairy moles. Pelphian's constellations uh, were designed by a famous artist and installed by master plumbers, not plopped willy-nilly about the sky by drunken nature. Really, who's to say it's our stars that are wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I liked that a lot. Yeah. And, and it it's just such like, a good example of Pelphia. Like, that yeah, sums up Pelphia oh, so well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> drunken nature we have better stars than the sky does. yeah and it's like constantly breaking all the time <laughs> they have to send hods up by a balloon yeah. to fix it but they don't care yeah what was the uh what was your favorite chapter quip 
Don't saw off your arm to feed a dog. You only have two arms, and the world is full of dogs. <laughs> I really like this one, and uh, and to me, it essentially means don't give in to people that are trying to hurt you or gain something for their own benefit that is like ultimately a negative outcome for yourself. Even if you do it a couple times, say that for be... me one more time. I need that again. What? Because I thought f- about this. Your your definition. Because I thought about it after it, and I was like, yeah, I hope Evan gives me guess. So I'm so glad that you're mentioning this. Oh, yeah. Your definition one more time. Um. So I mean, essentially, to me, it means like don't give in to people that are trying to hurt you or gain something for their own benefit that is ultimately a negative outcome for yourself. Like even Ooh. if you do it a couple times, you'll be left with nothing, and more people will come to take advantage of you. And not only will that happen, but you'll be in a worse state to deal right. with it than you were before. Like that's kind of like what I got from Ooh, that's it. That's good. Yeah, don't yeah. play their game. Yeah, and like, you know, the world is the, the the key part in that sentence is like the world is full of dogs. If you let that happen and you let somebody like really take advantage of you, it's just going to keep it's going to keep happening. You know, like you you appeasing somebody just because you don't want to deal with it or you know, are you you kind of like it's crumpling hard. under a situation. Oh, it is really difficult. I do mm-hmm. it all, I do it all the time. But yeah, like sticking up for yourself, you know, like it's going to keep happening and you don't want to be left with no arms like when it does keep happening. You know, you can't right. control it still happening, but you can't control your reaction to it. And you can like decide not to give into that pressure. And you gain nothing but lose everything. God, that's just, that's like one yeah, that in like 10,000 different examples of just amazing sentences and like um, just little great little tidbits oh, of little tidbits. thought that like what is going on in this yeah, man's head all the time? I Jesus. know he has beautiful thoughts. Josiah yeah, Bancroft. Like, okay, in chapter five, someone's hating on the Duke and he says, he realizes about himself, he was dressing the Duke in the rags of his own insecurity. Oh, Boom. it's like eight words and it says so much. Yeah, it does. And you know what's even the, Gorgeous. You know, the, the, the ultimate irony of, of that is like, yeah, maybe you are, but you're not like wrong either. Like ultimately, mm-hmm. he wasn't wrong about it. You can be dressing somebody in the rags of your own insecurity and be right about right. their you know what i mean like you can be insecure and still the other person is an asshole but right like, just because you're, you're looking through being, a filter right, doesn't mean yeah, that it's, it's not the color that it is but be aware that you're looking through the filter of your oh, own man, making it's yeah so, wow. so good it's so good this this is definitely a series that i'm i will absolutely be rereading this and i feel oh, like yeah. it'd almost be better as a reread i agree i agree like if this podcast is is up for 10 more years I could see we're coming. We're reading it again. again. <laughs> yeah. oh, that'd be so good. Take two on this. Okay. I lied and that the other one was my favorite one because I'm like scrolling through my notes and I just remembered one more that I love so much. I have to read yeah. it. Okay. It's why do we call a dishonest person two faced? Is it really so honest to wear the same face day in and day out, regardless of our mood, our condition, or the event? We are not clocks. Have a face for every occasion, I say. Be honest. Wear a mask. Is that um the the journalist? Yeah, it's the journalist. I love it's a that blurb. journalist. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Be honest. Wear a mask. <laughs> so good. I have a question. Okay. This has to do with the end of the book, so we're right where we want to be. Do you think that Senlin? And I don't know if I missed something here. But like, do you think that Senlin actually did pledge some sort of allegiance to Mara? He had to do it, right? Right. But in like the way that I read it all, there wasn't a whole lot of his own internal dialogue there. Like we right. were, it felt like we were just kind of watching it happen. Like, I don't know. Is he not I really 
Like he he doesn't Senlin doesn't seem to like to be controlled, right? Senlin doesn't like the idea that someone is pulling strings on his own fate or destiny or whatever. He seems to really like to be in control. So I think that maybe once he realized, and this is I guess a little bit of a prediction of mine, the last book is called The Fall of Babel. And the Sphinx was introduced so early on in this series that I think we're gonna see some allegiances turn. I don't know. I don't for some for some reason personally I felt like Maybe he was actually pledging some sort of allegiance to the the Hod King, um, not necessarily Mara, but just the cause. I don't. He sees how these people are being treated. Maybe Senlin really does think like maybe it's time for this tower to just go away. Like it's okay. been nothing but bad for me. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think that he is definitely like you're not wrong. I think that he is using all of the this tower should be different. It's not what it seems on its surface, and it's full of dogs and bad people i think he's using that energy and that belief inside of him to fuel the passion behind his pledge to luke marah but i don't think that his pledge was word for word genuine i think that he's merely you know like any good lie it's woven with truth you know and only just slight little things are tweaked and that are actually lies and so i think most of what he said was totally him being truthful and that the Sphinx manipulated me. I'm very right. aware and the negative things that the tower has brought about me and that it does to everybody. But I don't think that he was being fully genuine and that he's like, I'm a hod, I'm your man. I think he's... He's doing what he can. Yeah, he's doing what he can to do it. But at the same time, admitting like, okay, things do need to change. Like there's a lot of truth in his reasons to falsely give his allegiance to Luke. I like that. I didn't think about it like that because I kind of jumped to a conclusion, but I think you've got the more kind of like sussed out. I hope like, so. You have a more but... thorough opinion about this than I do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought about it for a long time, especially yeah. because I was like, you know, we all have mentioned multiple times our love and uh, kind of possessive nature towards feelings towards Senlin. And so I thought about that where I was like, is he, is he being a Marat? Is he going to be, is he going to be Luke's man? And I was like, no, I, I don't think so. It's probably more complicated than that. Yeah. Like Senlin's more complicated than that. Yeah, I think you're you're right. Yeah, for sure. I hope so. Now, about Taru, though, I'm not sure. What are your thoughts on him? Do you think that he's Senlin's man, or is he kind of still um, on for himself? I don't know. I don't know. Like, uh, he seems... He seems pretty on board with Senlin, but I don't know. Like, he's... he's he kind of sketched me out in the baths, you know? Yeah. Uh, he's just yeah. kind of got that character about him but i don't know i guess we'll see this is kind of a weird question but i had to ask you okay i feel like i'm kind of throwing senlin under the bus a lot in this episode <laughs> no i don't think so okay uh, do you think senlin secretly wanted maria to be happy in pelfia like yes. maybe it would have just been easier and he feels uh -huh. closer to edith after everything they've been through and that's why he was acting the way that he was oh yeah i think okay. the i think you just nailed that yes the um the feeling that we had when we were like, oh, nice, that buttons that up and kind of leaves Semlin to go about the rest of the tower solving its problems and maybe being king and sailing off into yeah. the future of the I think, you know, that was not by accident, the fact that right. we felt that way. And it was very well done in that it was how Semlin felt because he was so quick to be like, cool, cool, cool. She's all good. No guilt. I'm going to go on. And like, that really answers a lot of questions with Edith. It makes his life a whole lot more simple. Seriously, it's like, it's like if you, it's like if you, 
broke up with somebody and then like immediately texted the person that you had actually been talking yeah. to like while the breakup was happening it's just like dude you're gonna go to that hotel and just immediately send edith a oh, cigar moth yeah thing. yeah and he does cigar yeah. Moth. yeah yeah oh <laughs> uh, yeah i'm glad that you agreed with that because um oh yeah hard yeah like i don't know i, I don't, think he was kind of like darn it and then i think you know we kind of have to get unmade in order to be remade sometimes and i think his unmaking because wasn't it when he realized maybe it wasn't when he was in the bucket is that when he realized that she was saying things to him or is it maybe a little bit when they're like in the zealot camp or something yeah like, it was in he, that has a, he has an opportunity to like relay that conversation word by word by word over and over and over again and that's when he comes to the realization that like oh she was saying all these things and it's like he kind of had to get out his shovel start digging a little bit through that in order to figure it out because he didn't want to know that yeah like i don't think it's something that he would even admit to himself right but maybe he right. would later and that was what will lead him to be with edith or something right like, and that's why i was saying I he's kind of unmade you know he was in the worst he was so low he like none of his own ego was in the way or his own wants it was like he's just trying to make it step by step and so he kind of realizes in that situation oh oh darn um this is a question i had about duke willem okay um there was one prediction that i uh, was totally wrong about in the last episode um, that was Olivet being Senlin and Maria's baby. Yeah, we were both wrong on that. The Duke told Maria that he would bring Olivet into like his good graces, so to speak, if Maria agreed to give him a son. Right. My question to you is, knowing what we know about Willem now, do you think that he would have kept to that deal? No. Yeah, I don't think so either. There's no, no. way. He said, and I believe him, that if Senlin shows his face around, then he would slit her throat. Yeah, right. And I think that that contributed a lot to <sighs> Maria. Like, Maria knew that, too. Even yeah. though she didn't know um, exactly what had transpired between Senlin and the Duke, like, that exact conversation, she, like, Maria knows better than anybody, like, what her actual situation is. Oh, God. I, I thought about that for a second, like, after I finished the book, because I was kind of just, I was really thinking about the Duke and maria and just like that whole gross ass situation mm -hmm. and it would just creep me out even more it just made me hate him even more it's just yep. like yeah he probably wouldn't have even kept to that deal he probably would have killed that that kid anyway. yeah now i don't think that maria thought that i think she was really? like i just I think, play, yeah no i think me, she or else she would have so. been she would have been yes trained she would have been on the yes train first time around if she thought that eventually she would he would kill her daughter right she would have been trying to get out of there but i think but no she couldn't get out of there that's the point like she felt like she was like she had to have like someone had to come in and like physically put that guy in his place because i mean because senlin was would have been able to spirit her away at some point or at least at least he is he's capable enough to pull it off like we know that he's capable enough to pull it off but uh, maria doesn't she, maria only sees senlin as he was before they got right. separated so it's like yeah like maria in where she's at she's just like this man has such this like overbearing presence and control over my life he's such a terrible person there's no way i can get out of the situation so i just got to save whoever i can you know right, and she's hope in save that mode reduce right yeah damage yeah. yeah okay that makes a lot of sense yeah i think you're right actually yeah because like i mean if she could get out of there she would but she can't you know that's like yeah. the nature of like that's an abusive relationship in and of itself it's just like like a, the mark of a, a really abusive relationship is like when the the person that's abusing you is also the one that's like keeping you safe, or at least you think that you're the that he's he's the only one that could keep you safe, you know. So it's right. like, yeah, that's, that's so F. really toxic. Yeah, like really yeah. fucked up. Yeah, and that's so, like yeah. I, I, I really hope. I don't think I like anybody in these books 
less than I than Wilhelm, and it was a quick. Yeah. He was barely in this series. He's not just evil; he's evil. That's really good at pretending to not be evil. Yeah, and he has a lot. Not a lot of, not as much like like relatively not as much power as like the Sphinx or anything. But Pelfia is not like a like a nothing ring right. either like right. there's a lot of connection there there's a, seems like there's a lot of money and influence that's a big part of these books too i feel like is uh, i think that bancroft is really criticizing like the upper class the way that it looks down on people that don't have the same privileges and don't have the same kind of connections and influence and stuff like that um i mean he hits it pretty on the nose in a lot of different instances this kind of like working underclass who they, you know, nobody takes them seriously. Nobody believes anything they have to say. Like they're kind of just like killing them indiscriminately. Tell me what was your thoughts about the king? Because he was so kind of hunky dory for a little while. Like you get some, you're privy to some conversations between him and like his brother and maybe even the duke where he's like, oh yeah, you're right. Fine. We're going to have to attack him and kill everybody. And he just kind of like, he's just a figurehead. Like, I mean, okay. He's such a dirtbag, kind of. He's like helping kids and stuff too. Like, I don't know. He was really weird. Yeah, the king was really weird. I don't know. I think that the, he's not the one with the actual power, and that's is pretty plain that he's not the yeah. actual. Did the king ever find out that his son was killed? I don't think we were ever there for his uh, <laughs> learning his son of that. Was killed with a coat rack. Yeah, I don't know. However, he kind of seems like his son was the sort of guy, and the king's the sort of guy that, like, I bet she's not going to lose much sleep <laughs> over it. You know. This is my last question, and for this one, I want to zoom out. Do you think that this book is set in Earth's future? Or in its past? Uh, I don't think it's set on Earth at all. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, uh, I think it's just I a disagree. complete... Really? You think oh, they're yeah. going to tie it all in? Oh, I mean, okay, think about it. So we've got the Tower of Babel, right? Real place. Or like yeah. biblical place. Yeah. He's mentioned the Ararat. That was the mountain that Noah's, uh, Noah's Ark settled on. He's mentioned that the, the camp that Luke Marat's camp they're going to is by a ringdom called Nineveh. Nineveh, this is actually really interesting, and I don't know if he did this on purpose. I think he did this on purpose. Nineveh was the story. Do you know Nineveh? No. Do you know about, do you know about Nineveh? Okay, so <laughs> in the Bible, Jonah and the whale, you know Jonah and the whale? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so God tells Jonah to go to this city of Nineveh and repent. Jonah says, no, 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 God, I don't want to do that. And then he boards, trying to run from God, he boards a ship and they set sail the ship is beset with terrible luck and weather and just awful things for like three days and the sailors being kind of a superstitious crew blame jonah because they just think something's up with this guy it's him who's giving us bad luck turns out they're right they throw him overboard jonah gets swallowed by a whale or a fish he spends three days and nights in the belly of a fish before he goes okay god fine i'll go to nineveh like you wanted me to, and then he gets washed up, spit out, and washed up on a um, thing, which I, there's got to be some sort, you know, when Senlin goes into the wall of the tower, that's kind of belly of the whale e Right, yeah, totally. He's, he's doing some sort of, he's dry, I haven't quite figured it out yet, but there's some sort of Jonah and the whale right. I mean, I, I, I see exactly what you're saying, and I think that those comparisons are valid, but I don't see the connection to, like, I think that those are just those are just connections. Those are um. Those are nods to different like literature and fables and stuff. Yeah, like, I don't know. I, I don't... think they're nods to that, and also I don't know, man. That's kind of a stretch. Is... Like, I, but I mean, think about it. So like trog, like the troglodytes or whatever. Yeah. 
they're not alive anymore. They mentioned sea crustaceans yeah. being like dead. Like these are animals that used to live. Like, I mean, sea crustaceans, I imagined were alive at the beginning when the Tower of Babel were. So like some climactic event has happened. I, I don't know. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I mean, for one I thing. I think it's Earth's future. Maybe, but like, I think, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't see it being necessary to the story at all. No, it's not. It's like kind of a nerd, nerdy. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, maybe like maybe um, I mean, I would I think it would be cool. Uh, it's kind of like in uh, the Wheel of Time. Like they right. kind of do that in Shadow Rising. Um, they like tie it all in and there's like right, like makes airplanes and shit. Right. Um, but it's not like really crucial that that's actually I mean, I guess it is actually in the Wheel of Time if you think about it or whatever. We don't have to talk about the Wheel of Time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we can if you want to. Yeah, let's but. do it, baby. <laughs> it's almost four in the morning. Oh, my God. This is how much we love you guys. I'm going to ask him when he's on the podcast. Do it. Yeah. yeah. I wanna, I'm curious to hear. At least I, I at least want to know like what influences he, he had going into this because I want to read them because I haven't. Yeah. Um, I really want to know if he's are. religious. Yeah. I, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily need to be uh, devoutly religious or anything like that to be able to really appreciate... Um, I mean, dude, it's just like Western Western literature in general. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, oh, my not, God. Like, the amount of influence. He's not getting deep in the Bible. He's just, no. like, making, like you said, little nods to it that are right. very well known. You but, know? I mean, there's, like, stuff that's probably written by, like, like agnostics, atheists, like, anti-theists, oh, yeah. stuff that, that's totally ripping stuff out of it. Like, the Bible is chock full of stuff that you can use. And, obviously, like, a lot of that's been, um, there's some, there's some rehashed stuff in that from other stuff and things like that. But it's just, like, I wouldn't even be surprised to hear that, like, Maybe Bancroft is just like, no, I'm not religious at all. That book just rocks. And like, I got so much good stuff right. out of that combined with like this other journey. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to have quite a few questions for Mr. Yeah. Bancroft. I'm really excited for this interview. And if you guys have any questions, please email us at uh, book.reviews.kill at gmail.com. And we will make sure that your question gets answered. All right. With that, we're going to wrap it on up. Uh, these books are quickly becoming some of my favorite that I've ever read. They stand out as unique and carefully crafted masterworks of this genre. I'm so happy to be reading them here, not only with you, Chad, but with you listening and reading along with us right now. I only wish there were 60 more of these so we could have a book for each level of the tower. Ooh, gosh, that was poetic. <laughs> I am also very glad that we are reading these. And not only that we're reading them in general, but that we're reading them in the time of our podcast journey that we are. I feel like I said, I'm going to give you so much credit for picking the books and the order in which we did. Like, if we would have done this book first, we wouldn't have been ready. We wouldn't no, have been up to it. No. We would have been trying to figure out, like, how to be good podcasters and present ourselves properly and, and just, like, time, you know, how to work with each other. And this, we were ready for this book. And this was yeah. the perfect time for it to come along. And I'm so honored to read it on this podcast, have you guys listen, and to read it with you, Evan. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Really appreciate you being here. Hope you have an awesome rest of your day. And, of course, happy reading. Bye, everybody.